0: You are listening to Peripheral History on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, where we discuss events that happened in the periphery of history. Peripheral History. I'm Carter McNish.
1: And I'm Ryan Bagley. In today's show, we're going to be talking about five of history's most interesting unidentified persons. Those of you who have listened to the show from the start will notice that this is a departure from our previous three segments per show style. However, we're changing things up a bit and trying to have a bit more of a unifying theme in each episode. It's similar to what we've done for our special episodes in the past. We will also be switching to releasing new episodes every other week.
0: With that out of the way, let's move into our top five list of history's most interesting unidentified persons. We'll move in chronological order, starting with The Younger Lady in the 14th century B.C.
1: Yes, if you have any familiarity with Egyptian history, you'll know that this is during the Middle Kingdom, and the Younger Lady was a mummy from that time, specifically from around the reign of Pharaoh Akhenaten, whom we covered in Episode 4 of Peripheral History. And may
0: I just mention that I said 14th century. For those of you who might be confused, that's the 1300s BC, because centuries and years don't make sense anymore, apparently.
1: Moving along from that, the Younger Lady is a mummy discovered in the KV35 tomb, which is in King's Valley, hence KV, by the French archaeologist Victor Loret in 1898, along with the mummies of an older woman, known as the Elder Lady, very creative, and a little boy in an antechamber of Amenhotep II's tomb.
0: And for those of you trying to place this in time, 1898, same year that the uh, USS Maine got blown up in Havana Harbor. So that's how long we're talking about. 2,000 years pretty much in either direction from the birth of Christ. So, yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah, quite a long time. And funnily enough, when Victor Luray first made this discovery, he mistook the younger lady for a man. Um, But eventually it was cleared up that she was indeed a woman. Um, And... One thing that may have contributed to his misidentification was that all three bodies were damaged extensively by grave robbers. Yet, DNA analysis later revealed that the Elder Lady was the wife of Amenhotep III and the mother of the Younger Lady. The Younger Lady herself was a full sister to her husband, the KV-55 mummy, who is most likely Pharaoh Akhenaten himself. And, in addition to that, she is the mummy, I mean mother, of King Tut. Now... Just a note before moving along. Yes, it's gross. She's married to her brother. This is a rather common thing in Egypt. I mean, incest in royal houses is very common, but especially in Egypt, part of becoming pharaoh entailed marrying a royal woman, often a sibling, in imitation of the sibling marriages of the gods.
0: Now, this is all very interesting, but... It seems like we pretty much know where she is. So what's the uh, mystery around her?
1: The mystery is that there we don't know her name. And there are no monuments or anything like that in her honor. Like, It's kind of strange that she has connections to three pharaohs, three gods among men, and we don't know her name. Um, some speculate that she's Queen Nefertiti, who was a very famous Egyptian queen of the time, and the chief wife of Akhenaten. However... Um, this would require three generations of first cousin marriage rather than a full sibling marriage to account for the DNA results um, that we see in King Tut. And Nefertiti is not recorded as having a son. Moreover, she cannot be a daughter of Amenhadep III because, in that case, when Akhenaten married her, she would have replaced Nefertiti as queen. Hmm. Um, And unlike later periods where the... Wives and mothers, of specifically, the, rather the mothers of the pharaoh, were much had a, had a much higher position and were much more honored. There is no archaeological information that we currently have depicting or describing King Tut's mother.
0: Just uh, more more mystery to the puzzle here around King Tut, even.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting that she has connections to two of the most famous pharaohs in history. And yeah, no clue who she is.
0: That is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, with all of this archaeological stuff, it's hard to, you know, piece together a story. So it's pretty remarkable that, pretty remarkable that we have what we have. But mm. even then, you'd think that someone would have at least bothered to inscribe her name somewhere.
1: Yeah, just a bit of personal speculation. Um, as we noted in episode four, Pharaoh Akhenaten was not a popular guy. Right. And after his death, Egypt decided to erase him from the cultural memory and just throw him down the memory hole by um, by um, defacing his monuments and stuff like that. So maybe they they did the same for her. But if Queen Nefertiti was the queen and therefore Akhenaten's chief wife, it seems like it'd be more likely that they would expunge her.
0: Right. Maybe there's some evident, maybe there's some scandal that we're missing here that perhaps, you know, Akhenaten and <clears throat> that perhaps Akhenaten and this woman made something, uh, did something bad. And who knows? maybe Nefertiti was the person who that they who they liked. And then Akhenaten and this woman were expunged from the historical record.
1: I mean, it could be since it was de rigueur for Egyptians to shave their heads and wear colorful wigs to prevent lice. Maybe she just went au naturel and grew her own hair, and that was seen as scandalous. I mean,
0: it would be, wouldn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's just a no-go.
1: But it does also go to show you that wild hair colors are not a new thing. The Egyptians really, especially the wealthy ones, loved showing off bright colors on their heads.
0: I mean, yeah, it certainly attracts attention, that's for sure.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Just like birds.
0: Indeed. We should probably move on to this uh, next little agent here, also a woman.
1: Yes, and this is quite a time jump. We're moving all the way forward to the American Revolution and the case of Agent 355. We don't know who she was, even when she was born, anything aside from the fact that she died after 1780 and was part of the Culper Ring, which was a, an organization of spies organized by General George Washington himself and Major Benjamin Talmadge.
0: Interesting. And... Uh... By the way, this Culper Ring was so secret that the American public only found out about it in the 1930s.
1: That's pretty mind-blowing.
0: I mean, it would be it's hard to keep secrets that long. And I know, yeah. Even World War II secrets that were kept back, you know, secret during World War II, they're all out now. Oh yeah, even so, after
1: that, things like Operation Northwoods and and much later things that happened in the 1770s and 80s of the 20th century We've known about for a while. Yeah.
0: And uh, so the fact that they were able to keep this secret for 160 years, that's incredible.
1: It is. Well, anyway, this, this spy ring lasted from 1778 to 1783. The two guys who were responsible with, for running it were Abraham Woodhull and Robert Townsend. And their main task was spying on British headquarters in New York City.
0: Now, they're famous for many things, but one of the most famous things they did was actually busting the spy ring around Benedict Arnold, who was trying to forfeit the fort at West Point, or what is now called West Point. Uh, I believe it was called Fort Clinton back then. And uh, he was trying to surrender it to the British, and these spies found out, because, of course, he was coordinating this with the British in New York, they found out what was going on and managed to uh, split up the plot and force Benedict Arnold to run away before the fort could actually be captured peacefully by the British because of Benedict Arnold's traitor.
1: And fans of the musical Hamilton will recognize the name of one of the operatives who played a pivotal role in bringing down Benedict Arnold, none other than Hercules Mulligan, friend of Alexander Hamilton. Now, moving along into Agent 355 herself, there were several female agents in the Culper Ring, most notably Robert Townsend's sister Sally Townsend and Abraham Woodhull's sister, Mary Underhill. There's also Anna Strong, and it's speculated that Anna Strong may be Agent 355, but we don't know for sure. In one of the codes that the Culper Ring used, uh, 355 could be just a code term to mean lady, and as a result, um, the idea of an Agent 355 is also speculated to maybe just be a misunderstanding, a misreading of a section of one of Woodhull's letters.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of those codes is to be obscure and so going back looking through them, you know, it's very easy to perhaps misinterpret something.
1: Mhm. I mean, it worked. It it's did still work. very much obscure. <gasps>
0: yeah, that's, you know, to their credit, right? It yeah. means that if we don't know it worked. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were definitely very good at keeping their secrets. The organization was highly compartmentalized, and many members didn't know one another. And then to communicate, they often would write in invisible ink in between the lines of seemingly normal letters. They also, after, after being in business for a while, compiled a code book, and they just had all manner of words and stuff in there, so that, and everybody, not everybody, but I think only six, People, Washington among them, had a copy of this code book, very closely Mm. guarded. And it allowed, and they would use the book to decode some of the more cryptic messages. Right. And it was very, very labor intensive to go word by word using this book to both write and then decode these messages. But that's kind of the point. It's unfortunately, it's not like in the spy movies where you have your little instant decoder you got to put hard work into it if you want to make sure it's it's going to be safe.
0: Yeah, this is brute force decoding, even if you're the intended receiver.
1: Yeah. Um. At this point, we'd like to remind you that you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale on 101.7 FM. This is Peripheral History, and today's topic is Unidentified Persons Throughout History. Now that we've wrapped up with Agent 355, we're moving along to a mysterious man by the name of Jerome of Sandy Cove. A case from 1863 so what happened with him well he was discovered by a little boy on sandy cove beach in nova scotia in september of 1863 and the boy's family took him in tried to nurse him back to health in the village of Digmy neck the interesting thing about him is that both of his legs were cut off to stumps and the wounds were still bandaged and his legs were not fully healed yet what yeah, just random legless dude on the beach. Um That is very suspicious. It's very bizarre to say the least, and it only gets more strange from there. He was described as a well built man and little and getting on in years, but it's not really known much more about him other than other than that. Um by the time he died in nineteen twelve he's was probably in his 70s or 80s, but again, that's just best estimate. Either he didn't want to or he was unable to speak and understand, or, and or understand English, French, Italian, Latin, or Spanish.
0: Who the heck in this part of Nova Scotia, this is eastern Canada for those who don't know, oh, why yeah. would anyone know any of those languages other than English, of course?
1: Yeah, and he never talked. He would growl at some people who came to check him out at first when, when just, you know, like, hey, this random legless dude is here. It was the talk of the town. You know, there's not a whole lot to do in fishing villages. So right. just go gawk at the latest curiosity, I suppose. Um,
0: and so he and, just growl
1: at them. Yeah, he just growl And he could, he could make kind of like grunts, growls, kind of animal noises, but mm. was never never really spoke. The closest he came to speaking that I could find out was that when people tried to find out what his name was, he said, kind of mumbled something that the locals thought sounded like Jerome. And that's how the name Jerome stuck.
0: Perhaps his vocal cords got damaged or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that it's also speculated that he could have had a a brain injury, Mm. specifically to Broca's area, which is the part of the brain that governs uh, both the comprehension of and the generation of speech. right. Which would explain why he could make more, like, basic animal-like noises, but not, uh-huh. um, but not like, rational words. Now, he stayed in this village of Digby Neck for a while, but the people of this village were mostly Baptists, and they thought he looked like a Catholic. So they sent him to the Catholic-majority town of Medigan, where he moved in with Jean-Nicolas in another part of Nova Scotia. Now, word of him had gotten around, and the government granted a small stipend to help with his expenses. Can we
0: backtrack to the... Sure. You said that they moved him to this other town because he looked Catholic?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is just a... As I was doing my research, it was just this kind of throwaway line that, like, on top of the fact that um, the little boy who discovered him, his family, was on the poor side, so it was hard to, you know, have an extra mouth to feed. They're just like, where should we send him? And, yeah, it just... Somehow they thought he looked Catholic and that's why they decided to move into a Catholic town. It makes no sense to me. I mean, maybe just because speaking as a Catholic myself, I don't know like what my distinguishing traits are. Right. Right. Maybe a Protestant would see me and be like, oh yeah, he's definitely Catholic, but.
0: (laughs) Right. He, He just reeks of it. No, I mean, I guess, you know, it's just reminds me of that Mark Twain line, you know, it's no, it's no wonder that fact is stranger than fiction because fiction has to make
1: sense. Yeah, you know, <laughs> really, you hear really? the craziest things. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe it was done along the same lines as when a new baby is born. Like the in-laws see the baby, and right. like they just see their side of the family in the True. baby. Like even though the baby is like newborn and still just kind of like tiny and wrinkled. And sleeping all the time. They're just like, oh, he definitely has my grandfather's nose. Right. What is it? Something like that, I guess.
0: There's <laughs> some fudgery going on, I'm sure.
1: Mm. Well, anyway, he moved in with this town. And then eventually, um, after jean Nicolas's wife died, Jean-Nicolas himself moved back to Europe. And Jerome moved in with Didier and Zabette Comeau in the nearby town of Saint-Alphonse. And he lived there with them until his death in 1912. Now, the Camus charged an admission fee for people to come see him. But by <laughs> this point, he didn't seem to mind the attention.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I guess you don't need the stipend anymore. Well, He's I, paying for his own rent. I mean, he was getting the stipend. And apparently, they they um, uh, him and his caretakers uh, lived pretty comfortably with the admission fees and the stipend. Huh. Um, so yeah, if any of you in the audience are down on your luck, just invite a sideshow attraction into your house, and who knows, it it might make things better for all involved. Yeah, I mean ethics aside,
0: right? You know, we could we're willing to suspend that, you know, a little bit. To make oh yeah. You know, with uh, all the stuff going on right now, I'm sure that you know. You could let a st- little stuff slide. Oh, to...
1: Definitely. Definitely. Um so, yes, this is probably of the people we've covered today, one of the most mysterious. And he's still something of a sensation in Nova Scotia. Um, just because of the of the amount of mystery that he's shrouded in. Some people think that he was a mutinous sailor who was punished with amputation. Oh. Which, I mean, some some uh, some sailing punishments could be pretty, pretty bad, but...
0: That uh, that takes the cake. I don't think I've heard of anything quite like that.
1: Yeah, it. I don't know, just the logic of cutting someone's legs off and then, I don't know, throwing them in, into the sea. It seems I don't like
0: know how he would have been able to even wash up on shore. He would have just sunk like a rock. He couldn't tread water.
1: I mean, it mentioned that he was well-built, so maybe he just, like, had really great arms and was able to just, like, breaststroke his way to shore so aside from the uh punished sailor theory it's also thought that he could be the mysterious foreigner known as gamby who lost his legs to gangrene in 1859 in new brunswick which is a little ways away uh, on the opposite side of the bay of fundy i believe from sandy cove and um you know there are a few years there in between the last known record of of Gamby, 1859 and the discovery of jerome in 1863 but still the claim is tenuous the government seemed to have them both as like the the government knew of them both and had them both on file so you'd think that they would have put two and two together some people claim to have seen them both and that they both look the same who knows um and it this whole case was even made into a movie in 1994
0: interesting i mean i don't know what there really is to make a movie about you know uh-oh i guess we got to live with this legless guy now
1: you know i, I guess i haven't seen it who knows maybe maybe again not knowing what this movie is like maybe it's like one of those history channel quote unquote documentaries that right. comes on at like one in the morning yeah it's like who was jerome of sandy cove <laughs> the, no. maybe
0: the aliens took his legs for experiments
1: Maybe he was an alien, and Ooh. his human suit malfunctioned, and it was just like, and the legs were gone.
0: Yeah, that could do it. I mean, the water, right? It might short circuit the suit.
1: Yeah, he was dissolving. It was actually aliens from a from a planet without without water, mm. and who knows? Maybe maybe they're like a sodium based life form, so right. can come and in then, contact with water.
0: And then his uh, the 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 human voice mimicker broke down, and that's why he could only growl at people.
1: Yeah, and then. You know, because this wasn't the 80s, he couldn't just say, it's his phone home, and have his problem solved.
0: Yeah, I mean, at least this movie that is about him wasn't made by Steven Spielberg, so we know that that that, that couldn't be part of the theory.
1: Yeah. Well, that took a turn for the absurd. <laughs> Moving from this case of a man found on a beach to another case of a man found on a beach, we have the Summerton Man. Uh, Practically occurred... on the other side of the world. Practically on the other side of the world an event that occurred in 1948 in australia and this is a national mystery in australia that is on par with the kennedy assassination in america this is very much in their in their popular culture as just like one of their like big things um of the kind of strange variety conspiratorial variety um essentially an unidentified man was found dead on the somerton park beach in 1948 with a scrap of paper in his pocket And on this scrap of paper were the words Tamam Shud, which means it is finished. It was torn from the final page of a book called The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which was a popular 12th century poetic work in translation um, at this time. Not sure why in 1948 this uh, Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam was so popular, especially like when it had been around for 700 years already. But it was very popular. If you didn't know what your, to get your relatives for Christmas, you would get them this book.
0: Yeah. I mean, I suppose that this guy must have been well-learned, whoever did this murder, I assume.
1: Um, Hard to say. The authorities eventually located a copy of the book that this was from. Oh. And in the back of the book, there were two telephone numbers and an encrypted message that has never been solved.
0: The book that this was ripped out of? The book
1: that the Tumabshu piece of paper was ripped out of yes oh wow they found it um so yeah that's kind of weird and this man seemed to die in his sleep from poison Hmm. just sitting on the beach and if i remember correctly he was also found with a half-smoked cigarette so it's almost as if he knew it was coming on and just sat down and decided to smoke a cigarette as he waited for the inevitable um The South Australian police did not know what to make of this. They called in the FBI in Scotland Yard. Nobody had any luck identifying this guy. In January of 1949, they found a suitcase that may have been his, but there was nothing in it that could identify him. It definitely had contents that indicated somebody who had traveled internationally, some kind of unusual bits and bobs. The tags on all the clothing had been ripped out. Huh. Except for one or two, but the name was a dead end. It so he either him or somebody who was trying to get rid of him really cared about not having his identity revealed. Yeah. Um and it's also important to note that, you know, like yeah, sure, I don't put my names in my clothes. Right. <laughs> uh but at this time, it was definitely very common uh to put your names on the tags of your clothes. Interesting. Especially if you were wearing, you know, nice stuff like suits all the time. True. You know that that's kind of valuable and especially if you're taking it to the dry cleaners or something not not cleaning it yourself. You know, you want to make sure that you don't lose don't lose your clothes. So it was very unusual that his clothes were not marked yeah. or rather that they had been marked and the tags were removed. Um now with the the sketchy stuff about dying from poison and having cryptic pieces of paper and and codes, it's thought that he was a spy. And he was possibly in contact with a woman by the name of Jessica Thompson. Her house is close to where he died, or was close to where he died, rather. And her phone number was one of the phone numbers in the book. Interesting. Yeah, she denied knowing him, but after her death, her daughter came forward and said that she's pretty sure her mother did, in fact, know this mysterious Somerton man. Oh. Um, also, she recalled that her mother was very interested in communism and could speak Russian.
0: That's a little suspicious. Especially at the time of the Cold War. And in South Australia.
1: It is kind of odd. But yeah, interesting nonetheless. Just a lot of dead ends or kind of like half leads where, yeah, it seems like we have some sense of what he did. Being involved in espionage of some kind, but not who he was.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really just, uh, all these stories, you know, it, it makes it. It kind of removes the the aura around investigative bodies like the FBI or Scotland Yard in that stuff like this can happen mm. and they have absolutely no idea.
1: Especially as we get closer and closer to the modern day, yeah, living in a world that's very much interconnected, and yeah, it's not e- an easy thing to, you know erase yourself from society. Unless you join the Men in Black, but... Right. Speaking
0: Um, of Men in Black, we've got a guy who dressed up in black during his very famous stunt. But first, I'd like to remind you that you are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. And this show is Peripheral History. And so,
1: our next guy that we're
0: going to talk about...
1: In our list of unidentified historical persons.
0: Is a guy by the name of... Well, we don't really know the name, but we believe the name is D.B. Cooper, and this was a story that happened in the 1970s.
1: Yep, November 24th of 1971, to be precise. It involves the hijacking of a Boeing 727 uh, mid-flight between Portland and Seattle. This mysterious man in black bought an airline ticket under the name Dan Cooper, and that's really all we have to go on about who he is. Um, The ticket cost $20, $20, incidentally, which is... Pretty good deal for an airline, but you know, inflation, etc.
0: Wish I could buy a plane ticket for twenty dollars.
1: I know, me too. You know, they got pretty low, like in the height of the pandemic. I think you could you could get one from Denver to Michigan, Denver to Detroit, for around sixty dollars.
0: Oh man, yeah. I was looking at. I remember reading up on flights from east west East Coast to West Coast that were like a hundred bucks, but yeah, so that's so still so not twenty bucks.
1: <laughs> yeah, disease is a wonderful thing when it comes to cheap flights. Indeed. Anyway, um, uh, one of the earliest suspects' first initials were D.B., and then in news reports, it, the that suspect's name got conflated with this pseudonym of Dan Cooper. So that's why he's known to um, the popular imagination as D.B. Cooper. Hmm. Now... We mentioned that he hijacked the plane. He specifically threatened that he had a bomb and demanded two hundred thousand dollars, which is a little over a million in today's money, Ooh. and four parachutes. He seemed to have accurate aeronautic and military knowledge, and he said that he had a grudge, in general, didn't say against whom, but he was relatively calm and polite, huh? Which, I don't know,
0: yeah, not your sta- not your standard hijacker.
1: Yeah. Polite criminals are are always nice, especially um, at the time, the idea of plane hijackings and ransom or or that kind of thing. It was associated with um, Cuba and Ah. people trying to get to Cuba or working for Cuba. So he was very, very much atypical. One of the reasons why he was able to pull this off was that they didn't really know quite what to do with him, just Hmm. being as unusual as he was.
0: And so let's just get this straight. So he's on the plane mid-flight and decides to hijack it. Now he's asking for close to what is a million dollars. And I imagine he's not going to run down the aisle picking up $200,000 from the passengers. How do he get the money?
1: So what they did was when the plane landed in Seattle, they they had, they had radioed ahead of time to let the authorities know what was going on and as per the protocol of the day, the um the powers that be uh gathered the amount of money, making sure to note the serial serial number on each bill before um, putting it in the ransom package, and got the shoots. They gathered them uh, real quick from parachuting schools. I can't remember if it was one or multiple uh, in the area. Incidentally, because they rushed with the parachutes, one of them was a dummy shoot that was just meant for classroom demonstrations, which oh. we'll figure into the story later. Um, Anyway, they put together the 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 cash and the parachutes, and Cooper at this point um, allowed the passengers and some of the crew to get off, and charted a course for Mexico City with a refueling stop at Reno. Now he also, when they were on the ground at this point, he resisted attempts at negotiation. He had all of the windows of the plane closed to avoid snipers. Mm. Um, so they got the cash. They went. He had some very specific flying instructions, though. Um, he wanted them to fly low and slow, wind flaps at 15 degrees, landing gear and rear stairs down, and the cabin unpressurized.
0: So he's getting ready to jump out of the plane.
1: Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, um, the way the plane was designed, they could not um, have the rear stairs down constantly, especially during takeoff. Right. Um, so they couldn't. They couldn't um, meet that demand. But he was. He was chill with that and this guy is
0: just super chill.
1: Yeah, it, yeah, that was one of the things they remembered, to just like how calm this guy was. It, yeah, just yeah. An interesting man to be sure. Um yeah. so after takeoff, they were trailed by three military planes. But when they landed in Reno at 10:15 p.m., Cooper was gone. The last the crew heard from him was at 8 p.m., and it's thought that he jumped around 8:13 p.m. because they they heard, they felt the cabin depressurize. Heard noise. And so the stuff. So, so the stairs were up, and then he the stairs assumed. were up, and he he dropped them mid flight. Okay. Um,
0: and the crew weren't allowed back in the plane. No, to they see were
1: him? all they were all in the in the cabin in the the cockpit rather. Huh. They were all in the cockpit, um, and they just kind of felt this thunk, which is which they figured out from trying to recreate the flight was like him jumping. Right. And okay. that was around eight thirteen. So he lowered the stairs around around that time. Um. And it was very poor visibility. I mean, obviously, it was dark because it was night, but there were also a lot of clouds. So the military planes didn't spot him or his parachute or anything. Vanished without a trace. Huh. Now, only 290 of the bills from this ransom money were ever recovered. Oh, wow. Um, Because that's one thing that they were really watching for. Like They they had rewards out for anybody who found these bills in circulation because they figured, ha, We'll make it. It will make this worthless for him because he won't be able to spend a dollar of this without us knowing. Right. But no, the and these two hundred ninety bills were just dug up in the bank of a river by a little boy. Oh,
0: so they weren't even spent.
1: Yeah, they weren't even spent, and no one really knows how the cash got there, if it was buried or washed down river or or, or what. And also, I'd just like to point out the ongoing theme of little boys being involved in these with these mysterious people i think this is the third case the the elder lady jerome of sandy cove and now db cooper all found with or by little boys that's weird i mean i guess it shows you that goonies isn't too far out of the realm of possibility true (laughs) um anyway yeah moving back to cooper himself he used only well he used three out of the four chutes. One of them it seems that he he cannibalized it for parts. He disassembled one of the parachutes and it's not that like I don't know, maybe he used it for like padding for the money bag or mm. something. Um but the other two that he used were um one of the older parachutes, not one of the the more uh, new one of the newer models, and the dummy chute. Um so who knows? With the dummy shoe if that's the one he wore on the way down, that
0: would be that would explain it,
1: yeah. Or if he again used that for something with the money bag, or right, I don't know, yeah. I mean, Nobody clearly, knows.
0: he probably well, I would imagine that he had some knowledge of parachutes if he expected to skydive out of there, yeah.
1: And it's and it's kind of wondered if he was maybe an ex military guy just because he did have this knowledge of planes and military bases. And it's also speculated that maybe that's why he went with the older model of shoot, because Hmm. that could have been a kind he was familiar with.
0: Right. And also with the instructions he gave the pilots, clearly he had some familiarity with the jump procedures. So definitely this guy knew what he was doing. Yeah,
1: which makes it all the more mysterious. And, of course, they they scoured the plane for fingerprints, DNA, or anything, and couldn't find anything conclusive. I mean, sure, there are plenty of fingerprints on a plane, but, I mean, as anyone who has ever been in one knows... (laughs) They're could pretty gross, and it could be anyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, so interestingly enough, this is the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history. Huh. Um, which also, I just love the term air piracy. Right. Um, also, funnily enough, air piracy, I'm not even sure if that's what officially what this would be called. Because mm-hmm. according to international law, piracy is an... A criminal act that takes place in international waters, right? So and has mean. to be done for financial gain, right? It's actually a really narrow and bad definition of piracy. Just yeah. as an aside, um, because it doesn't like a lot of traditionally piratical things like pillaging coastline, coastal towns, stuff like that wouldn't be considered piracy under this definition, right? Anyway, that's a topic for another day. It's the only unsolved case of air piracy and the FBI only suspended active investigation in this case into this case in 2016. Wow. Um and they requested that should any new evidence come up, please to submit it. Um
0: imagine being that guy in 2015 who's the guy that's like the one person at the FBI still looking at DB Cooper.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that would be a heck of a job. It it would make a great movie just like the like the one grizzled guy who's just like before I retire there's one thing I want to find.
0: TB <laughs> <D>. Cooper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but that's proven to be hard. It's it's a veritable game of guess who. There have been over 1,000 suspects. Holy cow. And, of course, nobody got a picture of him. There are some sketches, a composite sketches that were done up that all look a little different. And a lot of the, the suspects have looked something like the people or the, the man that was sketched, but, you know, no perfect mm-hmm. matches. And of course a myster as mysterious a case as this has definitely made it into pop culture. It's come up a lot. And most recently in the Disney miniseries Loki where it was posited that as a as a cutaway gag that Loki God of Chaos was D B Cooper. Huh. I mean it would make sense. Yeah. Oh, another interesting thing is that there are also opportunities where you can recreate the D B Cooper jump. There are like skydiving groups. Where like you can go out over the same area and, oh, and wow. do the jump and, I mean, people do it. It's it's possible to survive. So yeah, who knows? Especially since you know, no body was ever found. No, nothing conclusive imagine was if, found. So
0: imagine twenty years from now they find one of these guys lands on the same spot that DB Cooper, perhaps, crash landed with his dummy chute. That would be. That would be one heck of a ending to this case.
1: No kidding. It would it would definitely be a sensation in national news and probably world news. Yeah. Um, and that's a wrap on our top five list of unidentified figures throughout history. But we'd also like to bring up some honorable mentions.
0: Uh, the first of which is the Pearl Poet.
1: Yep. So the Pearl Poet, also known as the Gawain Poet, is a, a um middle English poet. He wrote Sir Gawain and the Green Knight um, and several other poems that form a large part of the corpus of literature from England at this time. Um, Not much of it survives except for his stuff, a few other things. Um, I've got to say, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was one of my favorite stories. Definitely
0: one of the best Arthurian legends. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, Moving along, we've got The Man in the Iron Mask. Of course... A legend, a um, lot of books and movies hmm. on him. Um, Beethoven's immortal beloved, who was a lady love of his that we've never figured out, we've never identified. Um, and Jack the Ripper.
0: Yeah, he, you know, he lived in well, we think he lived in Whitechapel in East London. And if you've never been to East London, don't recommend it. Don't go. Uh, It was, and still is, a pretty rough neck of the woods.
1: A hive of scum and villainy, one might say. Yes, indeed. But I'm afraid there are no Jedi hiding there.
0: Yes, no, there are no Jedi hiding in Whitechapel. Though, evidently, there were a few serial killers.
1: Yeah, and that gets to the point of why we didn't include Jack the Ripper as part of the main episode. There was just so much murderous action going down in the late 1800s in this part of London that it's not even clear if there was one Jack the Ripper. Right. And that name even just comes from a letter sent to police that we're not even sure is legit. Right. Um, so just long story short, bad people did bad things in the late 1800s in Whitechapel. Don't be like them.
0: Yep. Don't be like them.
1: And that's it.
0: <laughs> and also don't walk home alone at night because all of the killings happened very early in the morning.
1: Yeah. that's That's another one. Um, and then the last two of our honorable mentions are The Last Jew in Vinitza and Peter Bergman. Last Jew in Venice is from World War II. Mm. And Peter Bergman was from the early 2000s, 2003, if I remember correctly. Very recently. Wow. Yeah. So it was that is a particularly interesting case because a lot of his actions were caught on security cameras just around the town that he was last seen in. Huh. But still... No one really knows who he was or how he died.
0: Very, very peculiar indeed. But what is not peculiar is that our time is up and we must close the episode now. It's just
1: sad, not peculiar.
0: True, just sad. Uh, Join us next week on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM for another discussion of history in the peripheries. Peripheral history. See you next time.